0: He has a lot of uh, fans and enthusiasts, and also a lot of critics and detractors. I think he's saying that he's now said so many unpopular things, that although he's been called things like, you know, the Elvis and rock star mm-hmm. philosopher, that he audience... And I, he even never liked Elvis Presley. And he never this even liked This is what him. really Elvis annoys Man. me.
1: Uh, can I tell you something? So, uh, you know what I'm now rediscovering? From my youth, some English bands, rock... If you are old enough, do you remember a band, Family? Weaver's answer, no mule's fool, and so on. You are also mm. too young, I think, for them.
0: Okay, sorry for interrupting oh, you. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it was just a story. Anyway, um, so he, his latest book, Sect on the Fowled Absolute, we'll talk a bit about that. There's a sentence in the book that struck me, which he says, the true enemy of the present book is... At the finest of non-thinking, an art which more and more pervades our public space. So hopefully this, this will be an evening of thinking rather than non-thinking. Now, I want to start off. I mean, the, the, what's like, if paradox is one of your f- favourite words. Mm-hmm. And one sort of paradox, perhaps, of your, your career is you have achieved this huge popularity. And yet your work's often actually, ver- you know, it's, it's heavy, serious, quite difficult. In this book, one of the key ideas at the beginning is is an idea that you've come back to a lot in your work, which is this idea of the parallax. Are you able to explain that to us in in, in words that uh, uh, we can understand? Uh,
1: Uh. uh. No, no. First, I'm very grateful for this correct introduction because uh, often I am presented as, you know, cultural critique, paradox, postmodern, and so on. No, I... uh, I already used in a self-presentation this metaphor, I want to share it with you, I love it. I hope you saw, everybody did, Hitchcock's Vertigo. You know that famous scene, and I was there in that Sequoia Park south of San Francisco, I saw it when when Kim Novak Madeleine approaches it, you have some uh, 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 trees, Cut in, cut, and so you can see the years there from, I don't know, 1000 years old tree, and she says, I was born here, I died there, no, as that Carlotta. And if somebody were to ask me, I would say if we were to get, like Madeleine, dressed in vertigo, a muse of philosophy, she would have said, I was born here, 700, when was it, I don't know, 70, 71, Kant's critique of pure reason, and I died there, Hegel's death, 1831. My big obsession is that we haven't really left that period behind, that even the big struggle in philosophy of the last decades uh, is still within this Kant-Hegelian, you may disagree, coordinates. On the one, I think, what defines our predicament in the last decades, now we are maybe slowly moving beyond it, is this precisely, I didn't forget your question, (laughs) parallax split. Parallax means you cannot bring, there is no pseudo-Hegelian dialectical synthesis. It's a radical incompatibility between, on the one hand, naïve philosophical realism, we should simply describe the world it is and so on, and on the other hand, what I very broadly call transcendental approach. Who are for me transcendental philosophers? I will try to be as clear as possible. The entire deconstructionism, or this so-called discourse analysis, and please interrupt me if (laughs) I get lost or if you disagree, I mean, most of the people are idiots, but you are not among oh, them, thank you. so <laughs> please interrupt me. I'll go home yeah, yeah. only let's, say, let's say, if you were to ask somebody, like Michel Foucault, a big uh, this, uh, discourse analyst, does a man have an immortal soul? His answer would have been, we can only talk about this within a certain episteme within a certain discursive context, and all that thinking can do is to describe this episteme. By episteme, he means vaguely, I simplify, what phenomenologists would have called hermeneutic horizon, and so on. In this transcendental tradition, to ask the direct ontological question, what is reality, Is meaningless. All you can do is return the question, what do you mean by reality? In modernity, reality means a different thing than in medieval times. In medieval times, there was a meaning inscribed into reality, so we are hearing, I'm not so sure. With Descartes and so on, external reality becomes this gray, meaningless matter, and we only project... So, you see my point from philosophical thinking, This, I call it naively, the realist problem. Okay, then, let's say you are Foucault, but if I asked you then, but F, three points off, tell me, so do I have a soul or not? Mm. He would not butch, he would say meaningless question, Mm. or like, and I think that, would you agree with this simple analysis that, as a revenge then, these big metaphysical questions returned in natural sciences, like, Human freedom, ah, today you look into cognitive sciences to get an answer, or artificial intelligence, are we free or not. The origin of the universe, you look into quantum cosmology and so on. And I think, I wonder if you would agree, I really that maybe we should break out of this transcendental approach and dare to confront in some sense also Not in the old, naive way, but nonetheless somehow the big
0: ontological questions. Well, it's nice for you to ask me, but I'm not sure. I mean, because from my point of view, I suppose, you know, I read Kant and everything. Kant introduces this idea that the world in itself, the thing in itself, is simply unknowable we're only in the phenomenal world, what you're calling this transcendental perspective. Now maybe in my overly relaxed way, I kind of think, okay, that's fine, I can see that. So why is this, why does this impulse persist that, you know, we want to penetrate through this transcendental perspective, the purely the world of experience. We we feel this yearning to kind of want to see reality in itself. Uh, Is it just a naive dream we should just give up? (laughs) Yeah, but
1: nonetheless, the question persists. You will not squeeze out so simply. Uh, Are you a simple agnostic, ultimately, who claims there is some kind of reality, we just cannot ever reach it? Or, as a Hegelian, I would be tempted to say, what if there is nothing beyond? Not nothing in the sense that we are just dealing with uh, uh, illusory phenomena, but nothing in the sense that there is no big mystery behind, and that's my, I will try to give a very problematic example to provoke you, (laughs) bringing us to sexuality, the title to, to explain it. What if I don't agree with this approach, that we are just limited to contradictory antinomic phenomena, we cannot ever reach what a thing really is, or reality beyond, What if, and this is for me, I know I proceed very fast here, I develop it more in detail in the book, the biggest lesson, that's why I think we haven't yet really apprehended what it means, of quantum physics, what really attracts me there is this idea that it's not just that our knowledge is imperfect, we cannot ever grasp the way reality is, what if reality in itself is somehow ontologically incomplete? If I may repeat an old story, which I often use in my books, uh, from some—maybe you know—it wasn't you—some very good introduction to philosophy. Simple. The guy, I'm very sorry, I'm just old and senile. No aggressivity implied that I don't mention his name. I forgot it. He draws a parallel between video games and quantum physics and says, you know, in a video game, when you move in the virtual reality there, immersed into a game, uh, the reality there is not fully constituted. Like, for example, in the background you have a forest, Mm. But uh, but the creator of the game didn't program all the details of every tree. Because it's not part of the game for you to go there, you know. Or you have houses, if it's not part of the game that you enter the house, the inside of the house is not programmed. And the idea of this guy, I loved it, is that what if... It's very ironic reading. What if something similar happens in quantum physics, you know, this... uh, 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 this uh, Heisenberg principle, we cannot measure of the same particle at the same time velocity and position. Now, there was an interesting polemic here between Heisenberg and Niels Bohr. And, of course, I'm on the side of Niels Bohr. For Heisenberg, this was just our, our epistemological deficiency. We cannot measure it. Bohr claimed, no, it is in itself that the particle doesn't have both the position and that. So, now, the ironic, and I love it, reading is this one. Imagine God as the programmer of our universe. And God simply thought, oh, you humans are too stupid, we will not be able to reach beyond atom, so why should I lose time planning programming for you part? So, if I may put it in this way, ironically, we, with quantum physics, How do you put it in English? Caught God with his pants down, you know. We were a little bit too bright of him. Uh, Sorry, too intelligent, but I'm not a religious man, and the true problem for me is how to conceive this ontological openness, unfinished character of the universe without God. That reality in itself is not fully ontologically constituted, which is why a consequence, when you get to an antinomy, that's my hegelianism, I will try to explain it as simple as possible, and I see, with full <laughs> right you are getting nervous, like, cut it short, as I made a joke to, joke to Julian before referring to Goldfinger, you saw the movie. If he were to have in Goldfinger James Bond, he would have pressed the red <laughs> button, you know, now to, to exact me. <laughs> At, uh, the antinomy. When we get caught in an antinomy, is for me not a sign of our limitation, but precisely the sign that we are approaching the thing itself. What if things in themselves are antinomic? To conclude and to offend you, some <laughs> of you. Although I'm deeply pro, uh, I'm deeply pro transgender LGBT. But you know what interests me so much in LGBT. The basic antinomy, which many LGBT theorists try to obfuscate. On the one hand, the predominant ideology of transgender, correct me if I'm wrong, people, is let's call it uh, Judith Butlerism. <laughs> it's this type of uh, Discursive historicism, there is no essential gender identity, identities are constructed symbolically through contingent discursive games, and so on and so on. Okay, okay. But at the same time, did you notice how the language that transgender people speak when they want to change sex is an extremely essentialist language, again and again, The media report how, for example, in my own country, Slovenia, we had many of them, but now a recent operation, uh, 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 a boy became a girl, and he gave a big interview, and he, she now, of course, said, finally, I exist in a body into which I should have been born. This is absolutely essentialist language. It is as if I have a fixed psychic identity, but there can be a mistake. My psyche gets embodied in the wrong gender identity. Now, for me, it's wrong to dwell into, okay, who is right? Historicist or this? I I think there is a solution from my perspective here. Uh, more even Kantian Schellingian one. Uh, of course, I don't believe in pre-existence of the soul. Well, in eternity, I look for, choose my sex, and then there can be a mistake or whatever. But isn't it? I like this notion developed by one of my favorite German idealists, uh, Schelling, of of this. Uh, he calls it eternal transcendental choice. He even calls it unconscious choice. Choice which you make, choosing your identity, but it's always a purely virtual presupposition. Never in reality do you make this choice. Now, to conclude, really, if you're <laughs> stupid enough to believe me, yeah, uh, uh, you will say, but this is metaphysics. Mm. This is bullshit. No, I will... I will remind you of if you were ever passionately in love, of your most obvious self-experience. If there ever was a free act, it's the act of falling in love. If you you never choose in the present to be vulgar in a male chauvinist way, falling in love doesn't mean I look around Nice lady there, nice lady there. Oh, she has nice eyes, she has nice legs. Oh, let's make a list. Oh, this one has. You never fall in love in present time. At a certain point, you discover that you already are in love. And I think that without any involving any spiritual metaphysics, we should accept this as a basic fact of our identity, how, how uh, uh, contingent as our identities are and so on and so on, I believe in faith, but not in eternal faith. Mm-hmm. I believe in predestination, but it's a retroactive predestination. Mm-hmm. We created it retroactive. And the last one, then, please, allow me to <laughs> <so, laughs> And this come, brings us to the problem of subjectivity. You know what, for me? That's why I sincerely know arrogant irony here. I love LGBT theorists, intelligent, many of them are, uh, who use this term LGBT-whatever-plus. It always bothered me, what is this plus? The usual explanation is simple British empiricist openness. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be just binary identity, male-female, there are many identities, trigender, asexual, whatever, but we cannot ever be sure that we covered them all. So let's leave it open. <laughs> Maybe we will discover another that nobody should be excluded. No, I claim, this would be my Hegelian twist, that you can be directly a plus as such. Mm-hmm. Your identity can be precisely the excess over every identity, and my claim would have been I cannot develop it now. Read the book if you want to learn more. <laughs> that a uh, uh, hysterical subject, feminine hysterical subject, and from my psychoanalytic perspective, subjectivity is feminine. For me, hysteria is not depreciation. The bad guys are perverts for me. Perverts are Every totalitarian power needs a pervert. So, but uh, uh, this is the basic hysterical identity, and to to give you a ridiculous example, that's why I love it. When you say to a woman, I love you, you get this eternal question. Tell me why you love me. (laughs) You cannot answer. (laughs) Because the woman provokes you, that's the hysterical provocation of a master, tell me what's my identity. And, of course, you never can get an answer to this one. You know, sorry for
0: this confused introduction. <laughs> no, no, no. I hope you're all keeping up. All right, right. No, 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 I stopped. Surprisingly, well, I stopped well, now. But I do want to re- rewind a bit because what was interesting in what you said was we were starting and we were talking about what seemed to be Abstract metaphysics, right? Yeah, we were talking about you know how there's a difference, a view in which there's a an ultimate reality, or mm. whether we're just stuck within whatever framework we mm. have. And then we went, and you started to talk about transgender, and 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 the different sort of the identities there, and how there's this sort of. Contradiction between, or a comp- maybe a tension between, a view where everything is very fluid and nothing is determined, totally and the way in which we do it's that. Very good point. That the Z- term
1: contradiction should be used
0: very carefully. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Good yeah. good. So the point is. So, is, but I just want to sort of like tease out the link there. What What's the connection between these sort of these sort of what seem like abstract metaphysical theories, which you said at one point, you, this is not just metaphysics. This is not just bullshit. What's the connection between that metaphysical problem and a practical? A political problem like this issues of transgender identity? I will give you a very, maybe naive answer. I think
1: that what is happening today, although many people dismiss me as uh, 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 misogynistic, no, I think that what is happening today with uh, uh, transgenderism and so on and so on, even me too, is uh, that for thousands of years, even before class society, there was. A certain fixation of gender roles, and that that is breaking down today. That we are at a point of uh, incredible opening. Basic rules of gender identity and so on will have to be will have to be rewritten. That's the great thing that is happening. Where I did, and second thing, uh, I. I claim that, but I cannot, of course, develop it fully now, I claim that uh, uh, this sexualized opposition, the traditional notion of masculine feminine, always also secretly at least influenced our ontology, even the most abstract philosophy. For example, that's why I prefer Plato to Aristotle. Aristotle's ontology is he morphē is masculine versus feminine, and so on. Aristotle openly says it, and so on and so on. So that's, these are, for me, the Hegelian, the most fascinating moments. When, and that's why we live in a great era, I think, even if we will all die because <laughs> of <laughs> ecology or what. That uh, uh, even. Stuff of our daily experience, what to do with transgender people and so on, and what should they do with themselves, of course. Uh, uh, it's not just one particular struggle, very basic things are at stake there. Even this is what again always fascinates me when we are apparently dealing with a minor problem of sexual politics, but it has radical, even philosophical, very fundamental philosophical
0: uh, implications. And also psychoanalytic ones, because one of your other great influences is Lacan, right? So you bring this psychoanalytic view, and like you said, you think that these categories of masculine, feminine uh, affect our thinking. I mean, are you also saying that actually, you know, uh, unconscious, often sexual desires as well have to be brought to the table if we're going to understand the way we think even about politics and and, uh, social issues, ethics?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, although, although I'm here, first I must say that uh, one has to be very precise here with what one means by the unconscious. Mm. I don't believe in some substantial unconscious which then allows you to get rid of your responsibility mm. for it, so that you can say, okay, I did that, but sorry guys, it's not me, it's my unconscious which determined me. First. In a very idealist way, I believe in total self-responsibility. Freud already said this. When he said, psychoanalysis is much more severe than Christian church. In Christian church, you are responsible for your acts, for what you know. In psychoanalysis, you are even responsible for what you don't know. <laughs> that you are so t- I am not in this sense... Referring to the uh, to the to the unconscious, for me unconscious is something much more subtle. Let me give you. I have it in the book. Sorry, I am. I will make a joke at my expense. Uh, In our still male chauvinist universe, the idea is this one: only we men (laughs) can think in abstract terms, concepts. Women, stupid they have to go from particular to particular. Okay, then I'm a woman, sorry. (laughs) I always jump from particular. So I will give you a wonderful example for what I mean an indication as the unconscious. It's not a substantial reality, the real me. It's something very fragile, virtual. Let me retell you a story, maybe some of you know it, that I use probably in two or three of my books. Uh, I, did you see the movie Billy Bathgate? It's not a good movie. Nicole Kidman and I don't know who. Okay, it's based on a novel by Doktorov. A movie it's a bad movie, but somehow you discern in it the echoes, echoes of uh, how you feel that the novel should have been much better. How it failed to capture a great novel. Now comes the beautiful paradox, for me, beautiful. Then I said, okay, let's read the novel, Uh, it's even worse. (laughs) So you know what happened? Bad novel, bad movie, but through this repetition, a third virtual (laughs) entity emerges, and that would have been purely virtual, the unconscious. Or to give you another, my favorite musical example, I love classical music. A Schumann humoresque piano piece, you have two lines of notes for right hand, for left hand. And then Schumann puts a third line, notes which are not supposed to be played. But the point is to play the written notes so that somehow they echo the third line. And now things get really mysterious where you have a series of notes, melody, with this third line. Then you get the same series of notes without the third line. Mm. To give you my last example, along the same lines, my favorite joke, I repeated it, I think, in the last years, five, six times in my (laughs) books, my favorite joke, very Hegelian, from Ernst Lubitsch classical comedy, Ninochka, you know, everybody knows this joke. A guy goes to a cafeteria and says, coffee without cream, please and the waiter says, sorry sir, we don't have cream, so I cannot give you coffee without cream. We only have milk, so I can give you coffee without milk. <laughs> That's what Hegel meant with bestimte negation, determinate negation. Of course, we have three entities here, materially they are the same. Plain coffee, coffee without milk, coffee without cream. But in their symbolic identity, they are not the same. And this would have been something like unconscious, this purely virtual without, but which as without is still there. So that would be my point to totally desubstantialize, how should I put it, the unconscious. Forget about those metaphors, uh, this uh, iceberg, you see just one tenth and the deep... uh, the largest part of the ice beneath water, it's not this substantial identity, it's something purely virtual, very fragile, and to give you the last teasing moment, that's what worries me now, I follow, this will be my next book, I also with Bloomsbury, I'm not betraying them, I'm now deeply into problem the problem of are you dealing with it? Did you write something about the so called wired brain, neural link, whatever? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, uh, first I also thought that's bullshit, they are dreaming. Yeah. But quite many things they already can do it. And what interests me immensely is if, even in a modest way, Something like wired brain, the idea is if a machine can somehow decrypt your line of thoughts, then maybe this can be connected with another brain, and we will not even need words, we'll be able directly to share our experiences. Here I'm asking quite naive questions, like, sorry, again my old guys dream about sex, vulgarities like me, can you imagine how, this will affect our process of seduction. It's none of this charm, we flirt, I indicate something ambiguous. If I'm with somebody and we flirt, and if our minds are in direct contact, it's just, I want to F you, yes, okay, let's do it. You know, all this, what will remain? I claim that all our human creativity is based on radical limitations. What happens if this
0: limitation will be abolished? Well, we're halfway there with a lot of apps anyway, because a lot of people get that out of the way. Sorry, we're, we're halfway there with hookup apps anyway, I think, to taking out the seduction part of it. But let's just take one thing, which perhaps is the most um, surprising one might sound even ludicrous sounding claim in the book. I know, I know. There are many of them. Yeah, okay. I'm the first yeah, one to admit, <laughs> yes. So. This idea of, you, you mentioned it earlier, that this idea that you, you say we is, is suggested by quantum theory, that you know, imperfection is a part of reality itself. Our connection with ultimate reality is, in a sense, the incompleteness and imperfection of yeah. ultimate reality. And so your second theorem, you divide the book into, you know, into clear sections. The it's a bit, a bit pretentious theorem, and bombastic, yeah. I agree. Yeah? Yeah. The, the, sec- the second theorem is that sex is our brush with the absolute. So if I could just read the theorem, it says the only way for us humans caught in the parallax gap to break out of it is through the experience of sexuality which in its very failure to achieve its goal enables us to touch the dimension of the absolute. That sounds to me like perhaps a, a, a very intellectual chat-up line. but um, <laughs> Are you, Yeah but I, I agree and I expected this reaction
1: of course but I must say that first what I mean by this it's obviously not this for me really ludicrous line Oh my god, when you are F somebody intensely, that's it, you feel the absolute. Quite on the contrary, for me, human sexuality is always about failure, postponement, repetition and so on. Let me give you again, I will do what you already noticed, a jump from high speculation to everyday experience. Let's say you are a woman, although I don't know why I say this, whoever. Let's say we shake hands. We just shake hands. It's okay. But let's say that after we shake hands, I would not drop your hand, but I will just repeat the same gesture. Automatically, your impression would have been something dirty is on his mind. Why is he going on? And I think human sexuality always has this link with failure, and then how to turn... This is what differentiates human sexuality from from, uh, from animal mating. I used in that unfortunate debate with Jordan Peterson Mm -hmm. my favorite example of French cuisine, a French friend of mine. Explain to me that all the miracles of French cuisine can be explained as turning a failure into a success. Like, you are doing normal Swiss cheese, you were lazy, the cheese got rotten, Haha! <laughs> we invented Camembert or whatever, you know. Or, you are doing wine, something goes wrong with fermentation, wait a minute, we got champagne or whatever, you know. And I think uh, that human sexuality is never simply we just want and mate, or whatever, we do it. Mm. It's always through this detours, seduction, and so on, which is why, and here Freud, I think, is still actual. You know, Freud's theory is much more radical, it's not already dated, as many people claim. Freud's claim is a very strange one, his point about Uh, 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 children's sexuality is that you have this first form of sexual awakening, five, six years, or whatever, where you have many fantasies and so on, you don't know what it is about. But then Freud says something much more radical. It's not that once you are adult, it's over, you know. No, all the time you need some fantasy, I'm never alone in my with my partner or partners or whatever. You always need a, a, a fantasy, you always need a fantasy support. So, back to your question, I think that, and I, in the first chapter, I approach this problem quite naively, I ask in a very naive way, the question of, and I like this, to return to traditional philosophy, what are our possible contacts with the Absolute? The first version is traditional metaphysical mystical experience. There are moments of metaphysical trends, whatever, we are there. Then, the second version will be the negative destructive one, Marquis de Sade and so on. Only our only contact, since all realities is transient uh, 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 disappearing, uh, everything that arises will be destroyed, the only way to touch the absolute is the, in acts of absolute destruction. Then we get the, what I call the transcendental position, which for me is what, what uh, is at work in so called Western Marxism for them. Social practice is the ultimate transcendental horizon, which means, George Lukas, the great founder of Western Marxism, said that even nature is always a historical category. This doesn't mean there is no nature, but the way we understand nature is always socially overdetermined. So, even if you walk, even if you, sorry, talk about, I don't know, uh, uh, primordial void, big bang, and so on. It's always mediated in its horizon of meaning by our social practice. We have all, and my, I try to offer another solution, which is a deeply Freudian one. I claim that what the properly—it's very naive what I will say—the properly metaphysical dimension. By metaphysical, I don't mean another reality, I mean you live your ordinary life, and something happens which interrupts the flow. You get fixated that originally this is eroticism. And even, let me give you again another everyday experience. Did you ever fall really passionately in love? And I'm not not talking about some spiritual love, but this really, I want to F you like crazy and so on. Admit it, it's a catastrophe, it's not happiness. (laughs) I cannot imagine anything more happy than not being passionately in love. You meet friends, you drink beer, one night stand here and there, life goes on. Then you fall in love, it's a catastrophe. (laughs) Your life is ruined, you have to worry all the time and so on and so on. This is for me, and I think the Freudian hypothesis is that this is the original. If we mean by metaphysics, again, not any transcendent dimension, but something that interrupts the flow of ordinary life, that it's it's eroticism, this erotic fixation, and, uh, and uh, now. I don't have time to go more into Hegelian waters, where my idea would have been that, of course, religious people would have said, maybe, but this is only the lower form of, like, you begin maybe with erotic transcendence, but then you have to have pure ideas, God. I'm saying, no, that's the original experience of transcendence. And then that. All so-called higher spiritual experiences are, are are based on this. And I'm here talking not only about some spiritual love, but even about uh, sexual experience at its most concrete. It's some, an interruption, something that breaks the flow, and so on and so on. And then I do something even more crazy, I admit it. I... Link this sexual experience to—I know this is the craziest hypothesis for some people, but I think my reading is justified too. I don't know. I don't want to bore you too much with uh, 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 Kant. Kant isolates two types of antinomies of pure reason: mathematical and dynamic antinomies, and I think there is sexual difference inscribed there in other words for me sexual difference is not a difference between two types of gender identities it's just two types of the same uh, two types of the same uh, deadlock again what fascinates me here and i think this is human eroticism is how what you already mentioned also how The very limitation, limitation comes first. Limitation opens up the space for transcendence. That's the paradox, that if you take the limitation away, you don't get the higher thing itself. You lose everything. My favorite example, it's a little bit male chauvinist. I use it in my books, I'm sorry. I was years ago in some country, I don't want to embarrass anyone, I will not mention, just... Flirting with an elder lady, and to probably seduce me, she told me when her last lover saw her naked that he told her, except for one or two pounds too much, you have a perfect body. You can imagine what my reaction to the lady was. Just don't lose that. Don't try to lose one or two pounds. If you because the perfection was a mirage. Mm -hmm. Created by that surplus. Mm -hmm. If you take away... One or two pounds, you don't get a perfect body, you get, get a bland, ordinary <laughs> body. Uh, you see, this is what fascinates me at all levels. This, I, or, let me give you another example, it's <laughs> erotic, and then I will stop. Yeah. Did you see that movie? I consider it disgusting otherwise, but it, it's a kitschy scene. Did you see, uh, uh, Four Weddings and the Funeral, mm-hmm. uh, Hugh Grant's love declaration to Andy McDowell. How, he gets involved all this faked, of course, stuttering, confusion, repeats himself. But the idea, of course, is obvious of the scene, that precisely in this way, through the failure to say clearly what he wants, he gets the message through. If it would have been a perfect regular statement, declaration of love, it wouldn't have worked. This is what fascinates me at all levels, this idea of how we get obstacles to some authentic transcendence, but the very obstacle creates as it echo, echo the, the dimension of transcendence. If, you want, if your idea is, let's get rid of the obstacle,
0: let's get directly at the thing itself, you lose the thing. Okay, probably one more question before I open up to the audience, because I want to get the audience in. Um, we are uh, like leaders of the working class. Screw them. Why don't we talk? We, now I will
1: talk like a Stalinist. We know better than the people what is really good for the people. Okay. <laughs>
0: there you go. Uh,
1: sorry, maybe, but this joke maybe. was very serious. That's my problem with populism. We intellectuals may be even more stupid than... Ordinary people, but unfortunately, I don't have this Maoist trust. Learn from the
0: ordinary people. Mm. There is no wisdom in them. Okay, um, but these are ordinary people. These are the anyway. But um, listen, uh, there were a lot. We mentioned earlier how you know you've managed to sort of offend uh, so many people now that you know more or or less everybody, more or less everyone everyone, now. I mean, there are lots of, you know, talked about specific things that you said, you said, for example, although you find you're horrified by Trump, you would have voted him for various reasons, you, you've got sort of... I was right,
1: there's certainly. certain you. Wouldn't you agree? My point, and I made it very clear, without Trump, there wouldn't have been uh, a Bernie Sanders and a democratic socialism. My calculation was a very brutal yeah. Leninist one. Trump is a great risk, although if you ask me, I have friends who know people, who know people, it may surprise you, I'm a weird guy, who have connections in State Department and even a uh, uh, Pentagon. And they told me, in all probability, uh, Hillary Clinton would already have attacked Iran or North Korea. So, But what I'm, yeah, so don't, but what I'm saying is this. Are we aware what great thing is happening for the first time in half a century? Socialism is taken seriously, there is a serious alternative. That's what I predicted, and it happened.
0: Yeah. Okay, so what I want to ask is, rather than going to a specific issue... Um, you know you, you obviously you're very critical of what you might call sort of left liberal, Absolutely. liberal yeah. so wh- can we get to the, what's the nub of your problem with them what, what's, yeah, the what's the what's the heart of it what's, what's the essence as it were to use the word yeah. essence, of, of your, your, your disagreement of with the liberal um, left position could, what's the core of the problem with the their worldview the core world of view? the problem is again in psychoanalytic
1: terms uh, you could put it that it's the problem of Fetish is denial of, I don't know, like this old word of class struggle, let's say, social tension or whatever. Uh, I think, you know, this very naive, we can debate about it, Psychoanalytic notion of fetish, fetish is very naive Freudian theory. The last thing you see before you notice that, it's very naive, I'm not advocating it, before you see that woman has no penis. So that's why it's fur, like pubic hair, and so on. But this idea is important, that you are confronting a social antagonism, and fetish is the element which somehow stands in for that antagonism, but at the same time obfuscates it. That's why, for example, in, uh, in uh, 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 fascist anti-Semitism, glue is a fetish. Blue is a stand-in for social antagonism. That's why if you analyze antisemitic anti-Semitic figure of the Jew, it combines upper and lower class features. Jews are too intellectual, money laundering, and dirty, promiscuous, and so on. So my suspicion is that this is why left liberals hate Trump so much. I mean, I hate him. He's disgusting. He's crazy. He married a Slovene girl. How can I? <laughs> Serious guy. But what I'm saying is that uh, it's as if Trump is the last thing they see before they see class struggle, social antagonism. And that's why Trump won. Because left liberals like to displace social antagonism with, you know, they love uh, 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 fight against racism, feminist struggle, and so on, just not to control social antagonisms. I am all for uh, anti-racism, feminism, and so on, but connected with social struggles, and so on. And that's what, for example, bothers me with Me Too. My hero, do I quote her here or somewhere else? I don't know It's A lady called... I think I didn't confuse the name, uh, Tarana Burke, an old American dignified black lady who even invented the term years ago of Me Too. Mm. And it's horrified at what happened now with this. Basically, the medium for failed movie stars and so on. You know who is even my hero here? Uh, you know the actress, political hero, Kirsten Stewart. He made recently a wonderful interview for I don't know Vanity Fair or Vogue, where she also he, sorry she she also attacks this official line of me too, and she says why focus on failed stars? She says make just one step back, go to any studio, all the makeup girls, all the secretaries that they're, they're regularly sexually harassed. Nobody even mentions that, and so on and mm-hmm. so on. I mean, uh, and this Tarana work says the same. They said, originally, "me too was meant," and in some countries work like this. I like South Korea, where it's a mass movement of women, mm. tens of thousands demonstrating and so on. And the way it was twisted here, you know, that's my bet. Feeling with left liberals, it's the same with refugees. This got me into a lot of trouble. No, as if I'm brutal, let the refugees starve. No, I'm saying let's not turn the problem of refugees into the problem of into a humanitarian problem. Let's make a step back. Let's try to change the situation which creates refugees. Why did we, why did United States attack Iraq? What goes on in Syria? Go to Libya. Go to Congo. Human nightmare. No. You change it into humanitarian problem. People are arriving there, starving. We will do something. More has to be done. I more and more think that this liberal obsession with refugees, open our gates today, it's a very disgusting manipulation with ordinary people. The upper classes they live in their enclosed areas, they never get into contact with refugees, and it's ideal so that you cook up a conflict between two groups of underprivileged people, ordinary people and and, uh, refugees, and you are above with your moral wisdom. In Slovenia, my country, when there were two, three years ago a big wave of refugees, I was for them, but I understand ordinary people on the border with Croatia, there were farmers close to the border. One day, one morning, in front of your house, there is a column of 10,000 refugees. And of course, there are humans like us, there are criminals among them and so on. All the big cities, Ljubljana, capital of Slovenia, elite were shocked. Racism, primitive, ordinary people. No, this is what I hate. You know, this fake upper middle class liberal approach, which then, uh, which, uh, which basically again is here to
0: obfuscate true social antagonism. Yes. So, what, short little follow up on that, because I mean, you'd still use the term communism, uh, communist to describe yourself, and, and partly to I think. To provoke again. But it's nice. No. Everybody but, but can be socialist. Bill Gates yeah, 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 yeah. is a socialist. Ah, communism, yeah. it's. A but, but, yeah, partly. <laughs> But you know, because partly as you say, that all these other things are distracting from the fundamental struggles. So for that reason, in America, Trump or Hillary, you vote Trump. Short question. But in not the UK, because of
1: Trump himself, yeah, no,
0: but because yeah. Trump,
1: precisely because yeah. the horror he is,
0: yeah. Gave a push to the left. Yeah. So in the UK today, Corbyn or Johnson?
1: No, no, no. It's not that I'm Boris Johnson or that I am in France Marine Le Pen. I made a judgment. This was not a principle decision. No, I understand. I, understand. So, I, uh, but I will give you a very UK. precise answer. I think, and it's an empirical judgment, Maybe I was wrong, mm-hmm. but I think the United States are such a diverse country with so many different structures of power that mm-hmm. Trump in power in the United States is different than Boris Johnson mm-hmm. here or even more than Alternative for Germany in Germany mm-hmm. or especially Marine Le Pen in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in, 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 in France. I, I, I think that Trump is worth, maybe I was wrong, mm-hmm. It was not a transcendental decision. for Trump is maybe worth the the risk. Boris Johnson is not, Marine Le Pen is definitely not, and so on. (laughs) But what worries me, aren't you worried? Uh, Like, the total disorientation, how successfully the Labour Party is screwing things up (laughs) and ruining itself. Are they all working for Boris Johnson or what? <laughs> and this is the question I ask myself. I would still vote for them, but all in the United States, my God, what the Democratic Party is doing now. Trying to sabotage Bernie Sanders, all the dirty games. They're really doing everything possible to make Trump re-elected. Yes. If I were to be a Stalinist, I would have said Democratic Party is the main agent of
0: Trump. <laughs> okay. Now is the chance to have your say. So we're gonna raise the lights. We've got some microphones. We're gonna take a... could I, could we ask for your questions if at all possible to be questions? Rather than speeches with the words "Do you agree?" at the end, and um, also to be as brief as possible because because I'm not, brief as, he's not as <laughs> brief as possible. Okay, um, let me let me see here. We do we do have uh, I think I'll just go to the microphone there at the other side there. But
1: sorry, at the end, can I get a question from you? Uh, because I appreciate <laughs> you. I know your work. I take it very seriously. And can you? scrap this politeness and ask me a really brutal question. Okay. I'm not bluffing now. Like, here, I don't
0: agree with you. Oh, I'll ask you a brutal I think what the brutal question is as we're taking... So okay. okay. So we have the first one here. Uh,
1: hello. I hope looking? it will work yeah. that we will hear
0: it. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, hello. Um, so I'll just preface this by saying I'm a huge fan of your work. I've read a huge b- bunch of your books.
1: My but question is that... I already hear you sharpening your knife <laughs> behind <laughs> your back. Yeah, yeah. Please, sorry.
0: Uh, My question really is, like, why have you chosen to write this book about this topic now? It just seems like there are maybe kind of bigger issues at the moment, like, for instance, uh, climate change and ecological crisis. Um, And this idea of, like, uh, repetition through history, and that's fine if you've got, like, enough time for that. So Marxism had time hundreds of years, Lenin, Marx, Mao, blah, blah, blah. But what if we don't have time because of you know, climate change and ecological collapse? What if the next time the absolute fails is the final time and we don't get another chance to repeat it? Like, I mean, okay. you say we sit through eight years of Trump to get Sanders, but what if eight years of Trump is all we have? Okay, so I think okay. got just a question, yeah. Uh, very,
1: uh, very briefly, uh, uh, it's even worse than you imply people who follow vaguely my work notice that somewhere from less than nothing, I'm basically rewriting again and again the same book. Mm -hmm. Even the structure is similar. Transcendental antagonism, parallax, then how to move beyond it, and so on and so on. Why? Because I, first, I still, no matter how urgent the situation is, I believe in big Thinking. My favorite quote from Marx's passage is, you know, 1870, it looked for a brief moment, it was an illusion, but uh, French Prussian warrant that there will be a revolution. And Marx wrote at that point a letter to Engels, where he says, my god, already a revolution, but I haven't yet finished capital, let them battle. I deeply sympathize with this idea that let's have trust in theory. We need it more than ever today, pure theory. Because today, uh, we really, like our situation with, uh, with wired brain, ecology and so on, These are all very concrete, pressing problems. Just think about wired brain and digital control. What an incredible threat to our freedoms this is. Because till now, the threat to our freedom was more or less visible. The Soviet Union threat. You turn around, oh my god, there is a guy following me. Today, our very freedom, what we experience as our freedom, is that's the form of our unfreedom. What can be more free than freely surfing on the net and so on, buying things, but everything is registered. We have So I claim that that's maybe what is so exciting, but also in a desperate sense today. We are obviously in an era where we have to really think. new. We need new forms of thinking, the ethical dilemmas we are confronting today with mind control, with ecology, and so on, and so on. Our entire ethics is changing. Here we have to move beyond Hegel, because Hegel was not an optimist. Never forget, in his philosophy of right, Hegel's final word is not this new corporate, almost fascist state that he described its war the necessity of war. And Hegel is there saying something with which we shouldn't agree, but it's in some historical sense true. Our notion of duty of ethics is all grounded on war. The idea is in everyday life you work for your profit, blah, blah, but the moment of ethical truth is when your country is in danger. Are you ready to sacrifice your life and so on and so on? It's obvious that we have to move beyond this. That's why I advocate with all the mistakes he made, people like Julian Assange or Snowden and so on. It's a wonderful new notion that maybe today the highest ethical act is treason, but the right kind of treason. So, okay. sorry, so what I'm saying is that uh, I, I precisely don't want to renounce the big metaphysical question because, as I already answered you, I think that, uh, that this is what basically is at stake today. Look at ecology. There is maybe not a field today which would have been more penetrated by, by Ideology, then ecology. All possible forms of, sorry, ideology. All possible forms of ideology are there. There is simple, ca- there is denial. Donald Trump. It's a pseudo problem. There is the capitalist solution. We will uh, tax more within the market and so on. The worst version, then there is the conservative solution. Mother Nature, we should become more modest and so on. Then there is the worst one form of ideology in ecology. This personal responsibility turn you criticize big companies, what is society telling you? Who are you to criticize? Did you recycle all Coca-Cola cans? Did you put all the paper aside? And this is a wonderful ideological trick, it makes you responsible like do your job here, don't criticize, but at the same time, it offers you an easy way out. You know, Mm. I recycle, blah, blah, so I can go on and so on and so on. So, but even, like, for me, the greatest temptation of ecology is the idea of good, big, mother nature. (laughs) <laughs> Mother Nature is a big, dirty <laughs> big. Imagine we live of fossils, oil and so on. Can we even imagine catastrophes, which must have happened before humanity on our Earth? So, and that's for me the true problem with ecology. There is, it's not that we, humanity, are a hubris and we just have to return to nature. No, nature is already crazy. There is no easy way back. So, I'm not avoiding your question. What I would always insist is what I already told you, that for me the unique feature of our era is how to confront this very pressing problems, refugees, uh, uh, ecology, digital control. We have to raise fundamental,
0: I would even say, metaphysical questions. Thank you very much. Now that hand that there has been there from the beginning, so could we pass... But I noticed that there? you are it's a right-winger. What about left? Yeah, 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 no, 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 I was... You have the to hands noticed there. hands there. Yeah, I am trying to notice hands everywhere, but this one's been ready 1st We're going to take this one, and then we're going to I'm go sorry, to... I'm yeah, 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 sorry, I need to look up here, too. Anyone up here? Yeah, can you ask your question. I'm going to look for hands up here. Hi there. Uh, I was wondering uh, what your essential message would be to nihilistic youths that can't even assert any kind of fundamental value to their lives to begin asking and discussing these kind of questions.
1: That's an interesting question, but you know what would have been my answer here? I was recently, it's not really, you know. I am a legend for this and I don't deserve to be a legend that I never answer questions, you know. I only as Marxists said sorry to go to a brief detour, I remember <laughs> it would be a wonderful essay to write about the different predominant titles of the books in different epochs. Half a century ago more, it was simple direct title, aesthetic theory. Then after 68, people began to doubt it. And all of a sudden, titles changed. If you are a Marxist, not Marxist aesthetics, but elements for a future Marxist aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> you were afraid to be there. Yes. Then came the abominable uh, 80s, 90s, postmodernism. Did you notice it? There was a formula which was a, a poetic title explanatory subtitle, like, sorry for a tasteless example, Beat Me, Beat Me More Violently Darling, Masochism in English Feminine Poetry in the 19th century. Now uh, I, I think, with and I think I am still regressive in the second stage. I give elements for an, for an, uh, for, an uh, for an, for an, for an, Answer. So, what was the question? I, I
0: can't remember the question either.
1: I wanted, but I had a point. The question was I'm very sorry, I will be brief, I promise. Yeah. What
0: you, uh say to Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I would say that the problem is not, uh, how do you say it, correct English? Nihilism,
0: nihilism. No, people say it both ways. <laughs> both ways. Okay,
1: okay. I think that the way, you know, uh, people say, I recently read that Walter Benjamin text on capitalism as religion. If you look closely at capitalism, it's a very religious metaphysical phenomenon. A true capitalist is not an egotist. He's ready to work day and night to ruin his life just for the reproduction of the capital. So we don't need these ethical calls, you know, don't be egotist and so on. Maybe we need more rational egotism even. The problem with capitalism is not that it's nihilistic, it's that in some sense it's in its practice too metaphysical. If by metaphysics we mean our material reality is not all, there is another dimension for which we are ready to ruin everything. That's capitalism. We all know our, our earth is falling apart, but we play our metaphysical game with circulation of capital and so on and so on. So I would say I, it's uh, that. Uh, I don't think the problem today is simply nihilism. Mm. It's nihilism as form appearance of a false transcendence or a false metaphysics. Excellent.
0: Now, do we have the microphone on the balcony? And could it, if so, can it go there? Who's, it? Yes, we do. We do. At the front. At the front, down here. It's coming. It's coming. Ah. She's standing. So we're that was there. sufficient. I was afraid we, that have we would lose bit. five minutes. Uh, no, no, worked. no. We've we, we lost 20 seconds. Good. So you're a socialist. No, I'm How- a communist. Okay. <laughs> no, sorry, I'm not kidding. Everybody even, is socialist even, today, worse. almost. How many times do we have to try? We, ha- we we failed miserably so many times.
1: Who? It's socialism. Yes,
0: and communism. It's like making a souffle again and again and again, and it's failing. How many times and why? Okay,
1: a good, honest question. I totally agree with it, although. And this is for me very sa- a very sad thing, I don't celebrate it, what I will say now. But you know, when people told me, communists, when they get into power, always screw it up. Now, again, I repeat it, don't misunderstand me, this is a very sad thing for me, but do you know of any greater economic miracle, maybe in the entire history of humanity, than what China achieved in the last half a century. Communists in power did this. And how they did it is horrible. Uh, The Western left in the West really hated two things in the 20th century. Wild unbridled capitalism and authoritarian state. And the Chinese communists combined precisely these two. Where I disagree with liberals is when they say, oh, if after Tiananmen they would have allowed more uh, also political freedom, no, it would have been chaos, I think. It wouldn't have worked. And this makes me extremely sad. Your question, I totally agree. That's why most of the leftists proclaim me now already a neo-fascist or whatever. 20th century, uh, uh, the fate of communism. With socialism it's more... Complex. I mean, what social democrats did in some countries, it was a nice thing, whatever you say about it. No, no, I will say now something which is horrible for a leftist, but take this left-leaning, center-left Western Europe till recently. Now I will ask you a very naive question. Was there ever in the history of humanity a period where so many people lived relatively free welfare lives than in Europe from 1950 to 2000. Let me tell you something like that. One has to be honest here. Why am I still a communist? I totally agree with you. It was in spite of its partial successes, but they were terrifying successes, like China, Maoism and so on. It was a catastrophe. I. Agree. The problem I see is simply the following one. We are confronting serious problems today. Let's name them basically the way I see uh, digitalization, new forms of control, uh, ecology, and maybe population uh, mix, new forms of, power, and so on and so on and so on. And the only serious question for me is the following one. Are we fukuyamaists or not? By this, I mean, and almost all the left that are no, even Bernie Sanders and so on, are fukuyamaists By this, I mean they accept liberal democratic capitalism as a form and just want to make it a little bit more human, more human rights, more social solidarities, blah blah. Is this enough? so I am to provoke people. I declare myself a communist because I think that if we go systematically through these problems, neither the state, state regulation in the old communist way, nor the market, or even not some, that's why I'm against populism, kind of a popular initiative can really confront these problems, like ecology, which is the problem of the commons. You cannot leave it to the market ecology uh, threats are too great imagine fukushima or chernobyl or whatever imagine probably it will happen even stronger we need to invent i don't know how new forms of larger than state coordination it's clear that ecology can cannot be dealt with at the level of uh, at the level and one doesn't have i agree with you here if this will be your point I'm the first one against this easy eschatology, even many ecologists are prone to it. It's so easy to, to succumb to this temptation. I remember some 40 years ago, 30, in Germany, there was this, and then in all of Europe, there was the obsession with what they called Waldsterben. The forests are dying, and they make charts our era around, I remember. 2010, 2020, there will be no forests in Europe. Statistics tell you that today, there are in Europe more forests than ever in the last 100 years. So it's not so simple. But I nonetheless claim, this problem is a serious one. Take the problem of new forms of digital control. I'm just asking you, how would you confront these problems? We are really, and Chinese are already doing it, we are also doing it. We are just doing it a little bit more discreetly than Chinese. Cl- cl- new form of social manipulation control. And I think that, again, neither the state nor the capital can regulate, can confront this problem. It will, something will have to be done. Will it be done? I'm even a pessimist. You know what's more and more my old man's resigned vision? <laughs> that. We need, hopefully, controllable, moderate catastrophes to awaken us. Okay. I'm, a, I'm a pessimist. I'm not this optimist communist. You know, my st- maybe you know my standard joke. You know, communists or leftists like to say, there is a light at the end of the
0: tunnel. You know what's my answer? Yes, it's another train uh, yeah. <laughs> coming towards <laughs> us. If you, if you want me to ask my, my rude, direct question, you'll have to answer this last question um, okay. which, briefly, finally briefly, to the briefly. left. I already yeah, had yeah, yeah. a room
1: in Gulag reserved yeah, yeah. for you. Now you are redeemed. <laughs> I don't know if you... Uh, please, a little bit. Yeah. No, just hold it Hello? Your mouth. Is it on? Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you've addressed this issue directly, but I wanted to know your thoughts about um, the phenomena that has become Greta Thunberg, as we all probably know. Um, why has this happened now? Is she Greta,
0: Tom, Greta Thunberg.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is she the collective wake-up call that we all need? Mm. Or, I mean, especially because the thing she's saying now I is something that... Um, indigenous leaders in, for example, Brazil, Mexico, Colombia have been saying all along. Um, why do you think this is uh, without undermining I, I her? Wrote, okay, sorry, I wrote some comments on her and it's not sure, you know, will she succumb to be in a more refined way manipulated by the media and so on. But where I praised her, basically I'm still for her, is uh, what is apparently a private feature of her. I think we need, she is, she is usually decried as autistic, you know. I think her autism is part of her political position, it is very productive. What, because our everyday ideology is what in psychoanalysis we describe as fetishist disavowal. We know how serious things are, but nonetheless, do not exaggerate and so on. And her me- basic message of Greta Thunberg, is simply, uh, don't tell me I know very well, but forget about but. As she repeated now, just take the science seriously. It's a very simple message and it's a very actual message. But what I find, when you mention this Latin American movement, with my great admiration for, I am honored to be in contact not with the top guy Morales, but with Linera. But, you know, Morales wrote uh, a couple of years ago, I think, a public letter, decrying capitalism. It, don't I, this is, here I remain a Marxist. Don't idealize the previous eras as something more in balance with nature. Just look how much nature, almost more than in capitalism, was destroyed also in pre-modern societies. Like, I, my favorite country in Europe, Iceland, how do you pronounce it, Iceland, Iceland, Reykjavík. You know that before Vikings arrived there from Norway, it was full of forests, Mm -hmm. they destroyed everything and so on. So, Don't idealize pre-modern countries, but nonetheless, I sincerely admire Linera, you know. Linera is not Venezuela Bolivia regime. They are doing they are not in the media, they are doing a well calculated, modest game, but they are doing it very successfully, they are not destroying economy and so on. I think that the problem with Chavez was it's not just external in the American intervention. Yes, all that is true. But he really didn't have a feasible new model. For me the best definition of who Chavez was Fidel Castro with money. He was <laughs> to have enough money. So he threw money at problems. He didn't resolve them. My hope is again something like uh, Bolivia. So I totally support all this indigenous movement. Just I have two problems. One problem is don't fall into this meat off Even some of my Latino-American friends have it. There are in upper Amazon some indigenous tribes, and they have some wisdom that... No, my dogma is always that. The most developed capitalism can always exploit, ideally, pre-modern traditions. My lesson is South Africa. Remember, ANC, with all its failures, that was the greatness of Mandela and so on. They never played the cards of our African great traditions and so on. They, they didn't mention any return to African roots and so on. The one who did it was the King Butelesi, who was on the payroll of Apartheid, of course, and so on. So let's not fall into this trap of celebrating pre-modernity and so on. But with this proviso, I... I, I, I totally agree and what attracts me in this vision is that it's not simply some pre-modern mythology but this unique chance of a pact between third world countries and the most modern, the utmost science of the West today. Only the combination of the two can do the job. Okay, very funny. Now you're but evil. But very briefly,
0: very briefly. Yeah. So you asked me my most, direct, no. my most direct, most challenging question. Yeah. The question I have is really like how to read you. you when I first interviewed you about 15 years ago, you said something like, I, I do too many books, and you write lots of books, mm-hmm. things come out. Also, we say, And I said
1: I will not, and now uh, way do uh, even talk, more you talk, books, You yes. um,
0: But
1: I recycle myself recycle. Yeah. I'm an ecological writer, right. I plagiarize so myself. Things yeah.
0: just come out, they come out, they come out, right? It's in the framework of a system. There always seems to be a system. There's a Lacanian theory, there's a Hegelian theory but actually in some ways it seems like there's kind of no filter, there's no editor there. So my challenging question is, should, do we take your work seriously as a kind of a coherent whole or do we just take the constant outpouring and pick the gems and, and just say yes, but there's a lot of junk in I there too? I already
1: answered you this when we were privately, I will very briefly answer you now. First, As such, the way you described me, the second, the bad option, non-systematic, I'm in very good company. Mm. Almost all of my favorite philosophers were doing exactly this. Even if they appeared systematic, like selling Hegel, they were really struggling again and again repetitively with the same problem. For example, Hegel Antigone. Do you know that Hegel returned to Antigone in his lessons of philosophy, history, history of philosophy, phenomenology, four or five times, always giving a different reading? Heidegger, another big example. In a different way, Husserl, Wittgenstein, and so on. I think Plato already, isn't he, even if it appears that you have this dialogue about this, that dialogue about that. He's always struggling with the same problem. And now, to conclude with the mega-paradox, you know which one? Maybe I'm the way you describe it, particular to particular, but I think Hegel is my model here. Mm -hmm. Forget about Hegel, it's a wrong image. The great systematic thinker, everything is deduced, and so on. Read Hegel really closely. It's really uh, often even patched up, obviously artificially combined without what in psychoanalysis we would have called secondary bearbeitung. This secondary work through where you patch up the gaps and make it continuous. Hegel is this, this insight, that insight, and so on and so on. And I find this a wonderful paradox mm-hmm. that the philosopher who is usually perceived as the mega systematic philosopher mm-hmm. is effectively improvising, desperately looking for a way. To, uh, the, because, you know, I will tell you another thing, you would agree. Hegel basically wrote just two books. Mm-hmm. People forget this. Uh, phen- okay, an earlier one before but- phenomenology and logic. All other books are just wrote da- written down by. St- okay, He's, he wrote two other encyclopedia and philosophy of right, but they are university notes. He there doesn't actively think. He resumes facts which are given in his thinking. Hegel really wrote. Two books, and he was constantly changing them, rewriting them, and so on and so on. So my answer to you would be the usual, pretty boring Hegelian paradox. I try to be systematic, but to really be systematic, you must get caught in this vicious
0: cycle of uh, repeating yourself all the time. Well, look, thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Um, before we go, I, I, I'm going to say something. I, was going to, I, I like to thank the stewards at these events because they're all volunteers. But I'm realising that on, on Zizek's view here, what I might be doing is it's another fetish, isn't it? I'm, pr- I'm praising the stewards to disguise the fact that there's actually this sort of like the people who are not being employed to, to do work, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe, maybe it's a distraction to thank the stewards, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to thank you for coming. Um, the book signing, there will be a book signing, and it will be here on the stage, so make your way up at the end. Um, lots of other Festival Ideas events coming up. Please look out for them. But for, the, for, the, for now, could we just thank the force of nature, which is Slavoj <laughs>